Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwash on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome back to Greenwashed with me, Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson. And we are very happy to this morning be able to welcome in Professor Jacqueline Roat. Good morning, Jacqueline. Good Thank morning, so Jaspreet. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. And for our listeners, and though I'm pretty sure I won't do justice to it, I'll take you through a brief uh, outline of Jacqueline's work. So Jacqueline Roat, she is a farmer elected director on Dairy NZ. Jacqueline has a bachelor's degree in ag science with honors in environmental agriculture and a PhD in soil science from Macy University. That's two more than I do. She's worked in research, education, management, and governance with AgriSearch, Lincoln, Unitech, University of Melbourne, Macy, Waikato, EPA, the Environmental Protection Authority, Agmart, and so on. She's been a past president of the New Zealand Institute of Agriculture and Horticulture Science and of the New Zealand Grassland Association. You've been a very frequent uh, contributor to public debate. We've often read you in the media, heard sound bites on various shows. In 2010, Jacqueline was selected as the Agriculture Communicator of the Year by the Guild of Ag Communicators and Journalists. And uh, Jacqueline is a director on Ravenstown, the Deer Industry, and the New Zealand Animal Evaluation Limited. I'm pretty sure I've missed something there, Don, so I will have you fill in the blanks, please. Well, she was also uh, the Federated Farmers Personality of the Year in 2008 under my tenure, um, and also was awarded a uh, Companion of the Order, uh, uh, Companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit in 2008, I think. So the list goes on, and if you Google um, Jack Willen, you uh, get pages. So we're very honoured to have... Um, have Jacqueline with us this morning. And uh, what I think we should do is start at the very beginning and give us a bit of your background. I mean, we know um, some of your listeners won't, our listeners won't know you weren't born in New Zealand. So let's, let's start at the beginning. That is true. I am British and I'm the daughter of a British Royal Naval officer who happened to be an engineer and an English teacher mother who went back to work uh, once their children, us, four of us, and I'm the eldest, were um, at school. So I've had the privilege of growing up in a fairly nautical background, but also with great attention to detail to um, writing and speaking and all of those sorts of things and arithmetic and management, all of the, all of the things that mattered to my parents and to me. And though we were Navy, we always tried to, or the parents always tried to live in the country. And from there and through school and realising, oh, Norman Borlaug, my hero, the um, person who made two, the, well, the short-strawed cultivars and grain grow double the yields with nitrogen and other fertilisers and sprays and water, of course. I conceived the idea, doing a lot of public speaking at school, a lot of debating, acting, but I was also in school, um, in the gymnastics for the school, so it wasn't just book work, thinking about how you save the world. And New Zealand, um, New Zealand does it through food. In Britain at the time, there were 60 million people in a country slightly smaller than New Zealand. 
So it seemed to me that the best way to save the world and save the environment was actually learning how to produce food sustainably. So though I hadn't grown up on farm, I'd grown up in the country, huge respect for everything that farmers do. And when my father thought we ought to emigrate to New Zealand, I said, great, I'll go to university there. So I'd done a year's farm practical in the UK before then going on to an ag degree, an ag science degree, and came out here, did a year's farm practical in Awakino, Bexley Station, fairly famous, uh, the one, the station just above the uh, gorge, which was a marked contrast from the years farm practical I'd just done on an organic farm in the UK. It was one of the Soil Association farms and then went to Massey and actually stayed there for many years. <laughs> That's where I did my undergraduate degree. And I'm so glad that I came out, came out to New Zealand before the university. I could have done it the other way around, not joined the family. But by coming out and doing my university degree here, by being part of Young Farmers when I was at Bexley Station in the Taranaki, I know people and I've known them since we arrived in 1976. And one of my concerns about the current online that they students think is just as good is that they've actually no idea. And I'm in touch with some of my classmates. I am in touch with the students that I taught at Lincoln during the 90s at Massey from 2007 for five years and at Waikato. And it's the networks and the fact that 40 year olds will ring me up and say, have you seen this? Or, or indeed the 20 year olds who say pretty much the same thing or say, what do you think about me moving to this job that actually help the world go round? And the fact that I can ring my classmates who are in banking or fertilizer or farm consultancy uh, is fantastic because they can give me the gen or they ring me and say this stuff on greenhouse gases or whatever what do you think about soil carbon we can actually say what the realities are and how we can make progress and my whole life in fact when I um, was lucky enough to be given a public speaking thing um, for it, for quite a lot of England. Um, and the interview at the time said, uh, Jacqueline hopes to land a job in agricultural research. And my mother <laughs> said recently, look at this, you do seem to have done that, darling. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot in that and we should unpack a fair bit of it. Um, interestingly, you do get uh, challenged by the likes of Greenpeace. Um, they've called you an industry shell. Um, uh, how do you cope with that? I mean, I've, I've watched uh, Dwight Joy also have a go at you. Uh, mind you, he had a go at me as well, as did Greenpeace. So we've we're, we're got common ground here. <laughs> well, industry shill means somebody that takes money for writing or saying something without declaring that source of money. So really, when I'm called an industry shell, shell by any of the activists, I realise they don't know what it means because I always declare, and Just Preet's made it quite clear that I'm on the boards of several organisations. I'm there because I know something about the topic they're dealing with, the deer, the dairy, the um, fertiliser. The, the fertiliser was the subject of my PhD. It's where I spent a lot of my agricultural research life. So I'm there to do that in all the writing and the talking that I do, because if somebody would like me to try and explain something, I'll do my best. If I know enough about it, if it's my area of competence, I take no money. So 
an industry shill? It's just the wrong term. Am I concerned about the environment and reaching it in uh, reaching an improvement in a way that doesn't bankrupt New Zealand but maintains our fabulous New Zealand lifestyle and the whole the way we look after the water, atmosphere, everything? Um, that's my focus. So busting the myths that are around, like veganism will save the world. No, it'll make it worse. Plant-based, well, pr- rather like organic, we could feed half the population in the world at the moment. Can New Zealand feed the world? No, of course it can't. But my goodness, the bit it feeds is done so efficiently. We should be helping the rest of the world to move into our sort of system if it makes sense for their soil climate, um, people availability. And that's some some of my concern about what Greenpeace in particular is saying, we need to move to an organic, regenerative, plant-based future. Mm, well, we've just killed half the world and actually it would create more greenhouse gases. So I think that's a problem. I, I remember Jeff, love, I, I, watching these I have, uh, newspaper headlines and in the news about... Uh, the Waikato River, when you had addressed a group of oh, farmers, yeah. and that whole thing blew up. I distinctly remember that one. What had happened then about your claims about the Waikato River and how they were all everywhere? Um, the concern was that I'd said it's one of the in the top twenty percent or whatever it was. I have those data. The OECD, um, between my statement and then next the next time they published, pulled out a whole lot of countries and put in other countries. So when the environmentalists went to check, there'd been a change. So um, Chile had been put in and the Netherlands had been pulled out. So it actually changed from being where we were. Um, But at the time I said it, and I still make the point, you know, that's just because I'd said in the... um, in, and it wasn't on my slide. I'd said it. It was it. We were in the top echelon, and that was the, that's what they picked up and recorded. But if I'd stuck, and I like absolutes rather than percentages for this very reason, if I'd stuck to it's below zero point five, and um, which is not considered to be a danger to anything, then they they couldn't have got at me. So. I just yes, I'd remember you've just reminded me about why that actually occurred. I'm very hot on not using percentages because you don't know the starting point. And Greenpeace just loves them. So how do we get through this cherry picking um that the <laughs> likes of Greenpeace uh, decide to to use all the time? I mean, I remember about 2008, I made a quote that Yale University said something about New Zealand water quality being the top four of the world and the media wouldn't pick it up, but the likes of Greenpeace decided that that was ridiculous. I mean, I remember that a certain person uh, uh, also said that water quality uh, issues were uh, X, Y, Z, and he was quoting effectively water quality that was coming out of the West Coast Highlands, a hill, so no cows, no humans, um, and yet I think it was around dissolved oxygen or something. I mean, it's just nonsense stuff. How do you get the truth back in all this? Because that's that's the major issue here. Yes, it is. And we just have to keep knocking down what they've said. So there is research on this. I really like research. 
<laughs> in many areas. But the research says, and this is sort of uh, communications research, that if something is factually wrong, you need to knock it out as soon as possible and then repeat it again probably a week later. And so um, you made the comment, I've been in the media a bit. Well, I've sort of got, uh, I just, I try and respond positively because it means there is a concern. It means they think I might be able to add something to the debate. And um, that's what I've always tried to do. And it actually isn't, a it shouldn't be a debate in the way it is. It's, it's, it's the bulk of the evidence. And the bulk of the evidence is where I sit and I uh, go back to first principles. I go back to the thing that's been quoted. It's like synthetic protein, you know, the cultured bat things takes 99% less land and um, 90% of the greenhouse gases and water. And you think, how can that be right? Because where are they getting the sugar from? Because sugar tech is a crop and it requires land and it requires agrochemicals and all of those sorts of things. Oh, so I do the tracking back. They don't count that. They start at the vat. It's like starting at a Fonterra plant and saying this is our effect, whereas when they're doing the comparisons, they look at the fertiliser coming to the dairy cow eating the grass and getting milk. So that's poor or there are ordinary milk, real milk, let's say real milk, gets its whole life cycle, but fermented stuff, I'm not going to call it M-I-L-K, is um, starting from the fermentation tank with everything magically arriving that's needed. It's nonsense. So there's my thing. I think, how can that be true? And then I go and find out whether it is or not. So going on, um, what we have at the moment is whack-a-mole. So you think you've got rid of something and then something else pops up. So you get rid of that and it's up there. And um, there is a certain amount of swapping between colorectal cancer and drinking water, 800% increase in nitrogen. And I've just mentioned I don't like the percentages because it's from a very low base. And I don't know how you have 800% on zero. It does, it's not a, ca a calculation I can do. And um, what, oh, preterm babies. I mean, it just keeps coming up and none of it is true. So listeners, it's not true. The research that indicated there was a link between drinking water and health issues has been um, shown to be uh, an interesting association, which is not the same thing as causation. And the Danes who did the research have gone back to look for other uh, reasons for the colorectal cancer. So if anybody's concerned, get active, eat fibre, eat your fruit and vegetables. And actually, the Danes have been saying that for 40 years. By the way, the Danes take in more nitrogen in their beer than they do in their water. <laughs> <laughs> I am glad you you said you don't like to use the word M-I-L-K for some of that stuff. Neither do I. It is plant juice or whatever else they may like to call it. And uh, speaking of these you know, statistics that they throw about, every few days, I think almost on a weekly basis, Greenpeace would rotate something about how many liters, how many hundreds of liters it takes to produce, say, one kg of milk uh, or beef or whatever. And I look back and I think, are they actually talking about, they're talking about the rain, the rain falling. Much of that is we are not irrigating. So what else were we supposed to do with all of that runoff that essentially, if we don't harvest it, use it the way we do to produce excellent quality meat and milk? That's a wasted resource. Yeah. Absolutely. We are capturing that. 
And um, we then allow it to go back to the sea, by the way. So it's only passing through what we do with it. And the um, the research that does the footprint, which includes rainwater irrigation and the grey water, was very early on. And it was United Nations water footprinting. And really, the, um, the activists keep going back to that. More recently, Brent Clothier, who's a fellow of the Royal Society and president actually at the moment, did the calculations um, more sensibly, as in, if it's rainfall, what's the issue? And the extra bit that Mike Joy and his friends did, saying that it actually took more than was available, was diluting the cow urine to drinkable. And that just makes no sense to me because it doesn't, eh? Why? What? There's also a big muddle about whether cow urine is actually the big problem that people say it is. Most of the nitrogen that's coming out of the Canterbury Plains into, and by the way, it's not at concentrations that create health problems, uh, is to do with breakdown of organic matter. And we have those data. Plant and food have done plant and food research have shown that if you don't have plants taking up the nitrogen, if you just have a fallow, which is, of course, what the organic people have to do every couple of years, every less than five, um, you can lose um, approaching 150 kilos a year out of the organic matter. And that is one and a half tonnes of carbon. So <laughs> let, let's just keep doing what we're doing and keep the grass growing on the Canterbury Plains. And then the organic matter stays there. We built up the organic matter on the Canterbury Plains, with irrigation and fertiliser. The old saying is hoof and tooth uh, fixes everything, and yeah, they're ruminant animal on New Zealand, or even other animals on New Zealand, they've not done a bad job, have they, of um, uh, adding to organic it, matter? Absolutely right. And the first thing, when the land came out of forestry, no comment about some of the areas that should never have come out of forestry, but that was the government during the um, 40s and you know, 50s, and then there was another lot, uh, is that fixing the uh, limit to photosynthesis, which on a lot of that land was superphosphate. So fly on the super, it's phosphate, it's phosphorus, fly on the superphosphate, get the, that allowed the legumes to grow, and we're really good at legume management in New Zealand, and we're really good at identifying the type of legume. So white clover on the flats and maybe suckling subterranean on the hills. And that allows the grass to grow, and then you manage it with um, your grazing routine. And New Zealand was the creator of the whole rotational system. And back in the 30s, the work was done that looked at animal plant soil interaction and there are now buildings in grasslands uh, at Palmerston North that are called after the people that did that work in the 30s. And we fine-tuned it ever since then. Yeah. And, and I remember when I came farming in the 80s, uh, rotational grazing and sheep farms with electric fence um, management was just breaking out. And uh, it, it revolutionised my farming system. Uh, mm you know, what we might call cell grazing uh, with the hoof and tooth, it, it revitalised what was a pretty stale sort of farm before into something that was quite different. And uh, that's what I see dairy farming even doing better than I did as a sheep and beef farmer. So um, good on them. Well, dairy farming tends to be in areas that are moisture, moist, moister and um, flatter 
And so when people are saying, well, don't we just, we have to remember that New Zealand has very different climate and soil types and topography. And we, I think we're superb New Zealanders. I've suddenly put myself in as a New Zealander in identifying what will be worst and best for the area being considered. Absolutely. And I I recall uh, trying to educate people like you done far better than I, that New Zealand isn't a flat plate with the same rainfall and, and it's all flat and it's all nice and it, it, it just is North Cape to bluff, everything can be the same. I don't know why people can't get that through and moreover, um, the fact that farming goes naked in public uh, is another big deal. I mean, I don't have a say on how a hotel is operated. I don't need to have that say, but everyone seems to want to have a say about how I should farm. And it's a new psyche. It never used to be around at the start of my farming career. That's a very good point. Absolutely. It is odd. I um, that was thinking yesterday, I was talking to a group of people and all on screen uh, to do with the KPMG agribusiness ag agenda that, they, that KPMG does each year. I'm thinking there's an awful lot of farmers could. Have we actually checked on what they do do? And I said at the end, you know, we've got the most innovative group of farmers in the world. They are looking always at what they can do better. And sometimes that's land use change. And um, no other country does this because they're subsidised to do what they are going on doing. Whereas we have produced food for the fewest greenhouse gases and least end loss. And we have the data. And not ours, but also through the OECD and able to compare it with. We have achieved all that because, well, the subsidies came off in the um, early 80s, mid 80s, and we've gone on focusing on market signals. So look where deer came, look dairy on the Canterbury Plains because there were no subsidies to keep the sheep there. And then they developed it and the soil organic matters built up. So I think New Zealand farmers are fantastic. I just don't like the forestry. <laughs> Well, in, in, in saying that, um, yeah, that the forestry regime has been um, manipulated by legislative privilege again. Uh, the yep. very things we got of in the 80s, we've been giving this legislative privilege uh, to what is a new term called uh, carbon forestry, which is effectively what we were doing in my forest uh, all along. Right. But we've yep. got this legislative privilege now. And, and who's paying for that? Effectively, we're paying for it. As yep. You can see the damage going to happen. Unkempt forests. Um, uh, owners that don't really care what's happening as long as it's growing and they bank bank a uh, carbon unit or two every year or, or, or thousands at the taxpayer's expense. So I would say that any farmer can do legal, as long as it's legal, what he or she wants with the land. So we're mm. able to change from sheep to dairy and people are now complaining because they don't think dairy should be on the Canterbury Plains. But we need to insert here that everybody thinks what they grew up with is right. And so I have shown schools when I'm talking to them about opportunities. The Mackenzie Basin um, sort of originally and then with the lupins and you know people are getting married amongst the lupins and then with the crop circles, which are really just pasture, and the um, under 20-year-olds will say, well, the crop circles are, um, are fine, whereas the parents will say, oh, no, it should be like it was at the beginning, before the crop circles came, and we like the lupins. Well, the lupins were introduced by David Scott's mother. 
the Connie, that's why they're called Connie Lupins. Apparently she used to wear an apron and she'd just throw them out of the car window when she was driving along. And so he loved Lupins. R.I.P. Bless his cotton socks and everything. And now they're spending a lot of money spraying those lupins. Yeah. And um, yeah. the, the vista that they created, I know they may yeah. have been a farmer, but the vista they created was, as you say, revered by people getting married or, or tourists yeah. who stopped. I mean, my wife driving through the Lindus Pass, God, we've got to stop and take a photo of those lupins. Oh. Well, uh, it's the millennials love them. Right, the millennials love them. Uh, and it's just so it's a question of what you grew up with and just harking back to the water. People think that water should be, you know, sparkly twink because that and NZIEI, Institute of Economic Research, did this work and said, you know, people seem to believe that water should be clear and sparkly and because that's their memory of their childhood, even though it might not have been. Whereas David Attenborough, um, another hero, but I might have to cry soon because he's clearly ageing out. Said, says that all rivers start off clear and chuckly as they rush down the mountain. And by the time they get to the sea, then they've picked up sediment, they've got things growing in them, and the difference in them is palpable. You know, you, you can see it. And uh, a lot of rivers in New Zealand tend to pick up clay. Um, up in the Waikato, it's peat. They pick up the tannins from the peat, and there's quite a lot of silt in it because we've got... Um, erodible soils on the wide path. Jacqueline, you use the word millennials. Now, millennials, yeah. you, you, we are talking about how efficient we've been and, as you say, how great uh, food we're pro producing, both in volume and in quality. But yet yeah. the argument that the millennials have been told, or at least that's the one that they spout 24-7, is that we have 50% of our footprint. Uh, if you look at some other professors, not uh, it could go even up to 75, we are responsible for the greenhouse gases of the country, agriculture. It is completely, I, I don't even understand how they pluck those figures out of the thin air, but it's like they don't look at the fact that whatever emissions that there are, it is also a product of how efficient we are as a country in producing this, uh -huh. a very small manpower, very small population yeah. producing this amount. Well, Jaspreet, it's the what I said earlier about the whole problem between um, percentages and what we're actually trying to do here. Fonterra, uh, Nestle, and our con consumers, uh, Nestle being a customer out in the UK, want uh, fewer greenhouse gases environmental impact per bite, and they actually aren't care don't care about the country. They care about per bite. But it's only a very small proportion of them that are prepared to pay for that. So the premium market. And we've got lots of data that's showing this. New Zealand as a whole and the millennials uh, and younger are saying we've got to reduce our impact as a country. And it's quite easy to blame agriculture because it's there and, you know, everybody's trying to farm agriculture for us. Oh, good. And so there are all sorts of theories about how we could do it better, and most of them are just wrong, and that's a pity. Organics actually creates more impact per bite, so does regenerative, and there's no difference in nutritional quality. So they've just bought into this incorrect understanding. 
So let's go back to this various figures. It all depends how you're doing the calculations. But in general, if we use IPCC, the International um, Governmental Panel on Climate Change, then agriculture, according to the amount that is eaten by the animals, will be about half of all the emissions. So that would put us at um, we're about 0.2% of global, just under, less than 0.1% of the global emissions. And that is tiny when you then consider the number of percentages of people that we actually feed their protein needs. And that's the issue. But by the time you've got through that calculation, most people have, you know, zedded off because we don't value mathematics in school anymore. So they give up. So how, how did we get into this bind about regen especially? I mean, it really hit home to me when the Minister of Finance, uh, Deputy Prime Minister, no, he was a Deputy Prime Minister for a bit, Grant Robertson started saying we're going to fund Regen Ag uh, research. And I thought, you know nothing about agriculture. How did you get caught up in this? And I dare say if you uh, do the backstory on it, it does go back to a United Nations um, sort of uh, ethos that this was going to be something that we needed to approach in the world. But it came inside New Zealand's governance. And now we've got a, a new consortium set up this year and this, or was it last year's budget, another 300 and something million. Um, I, the money that's going out to greenhouse gas consortiums and um, this climate change consortium, it just seems yeah. to be outlandish. But how did we get there? I mean, we've bought into it. Yeah, it's one of the depressions of my life. $57 million invested so far in regenerative agricultural so-called research to show meh, increasingly what we said it would show three years ago. And they, there are a whole lot of scientists, of which I am one, who've been trying to put the actual facts out uh, when people have said it's going to be better. And we say, what do you mean by better? Oh, it's going to produce nutrient-dense food. Hmm. There's nothing, no change, no consistent, credible evidence that says when you're on the same soil type in the same season using the same cultivar, the nutritional there is any nutritional difference between uh, organic and conventional and regenerative sits in the middle somewhere slightly nearer organic than the conventional. So why would there be any difference? If there's no difference in the extremes, why would there be any difference between something in the middle and conventional? Then they say, oh, it's better for soil health. Have you checked our soils? They're fabulous. We built up the organic matter and we got the data that said the worms and the microorganisms have built up as well. Yeah. So, so in effect, what you could be saying, I'm not putting words in your mouth, is that the regen uh, activity is really mining what was there in the first place, built up over years by, by previous right. farming systems, and all of a sudden it's just convenient to change to this new way because there, there could be some dis, some premium for individual traders or whatever. I don't know what, what it's right. about. So the regenerative agriculture thing came in with overseas people who were used by certain influential farmers to say that we can do better. And so some of us raise our sceptical eyebrows and say, mm, it's going to be a challenge. 
And then because they have had influence into uh, the ministries, then we suddenly have this big fund that is being dished out. And what the research has shown so far is everything that the scientists who trained in New Zealand said would happen has. And it's pretty much like they switched to organic and we did all this research in the long-term superphosphate trials during the 80s and 90s, that you can survive for a few years. Now, we've got a very high profile, high profile because it's been in the media, from a Southland couple, Jeff and Lindsay Keane, who changed from being quite green to regen Ooh. because they were told there would be a premium. They were told it was going to be the best thing ever, and so they sweetly shifted and uh, crashed within two years because they had no reserves. The banks say if somebody comes to them and says they want to be organic, they know it's seven to ten years to selling the farm because that's how long on a normal farm it will take to mine the constituents that are there in the soil already. And I said this once in a, at a meeting in Hill Country and around I've done the talk and there was around the dinner table and a glazed look came across the three of the farmers at the table. And I said, are you okay? What did I say? And they said, we're just doing the calculations. She's right. Smiths, greens and browns, they all went under within seven years. Wow. And it's just making the point. We have the data. We know what happens if you stop putting on fertiliser. Mine the small. So, so add on to that. I dare say um, all the doomsters worry about tomorrow. Uh, they worry about 500 years from now, what it might look like. They seem to have this, this magic uh, ability to see hundreds of years out that we're going to be uh, all, uh, we've mined the earth and there's nothing left. I know we, we, we put nutrients into a system and we put it into products and it goes somewhere else in, in the world. Um, and so it's in a different place. I dare say, I'm just positing the idea that the doomsters also think that there is going to be nothing left to replace what we've taken. Um, is it something that we should be that worried about when we're talking thousands of years out, in fact, for even the possibility of that? Well, this was the whole debate about what sustainability really meant. You can't protect things for the future and they might not need them, want them, desire them, anything like that. So uh, for me, what the sustainability means at the moment is producing food for the population. We've got over 8 billion people in the world at the moment. And how can we produce food most sustainably? And I do think there's been a wake-up call, a real wake-up call in terms of the climate. But when I talk to my, you know, my, this, my nephews, nieces, the young, whatever, and they say, what can we do, Jack? You know, what can we do? Uh, should we become vegan? And I explain the realities that personally they will then be worse for the environment because of their actual impact in the through the sewage system. Vegans excrete more nitrogen per, you know, identical twin, one omnivore and the other one not. So thank you, Greta. You're just wrong. I'm glad she's gone back to school. Uh, and I say, well, you know, what you could do is not take that holiday to the islands you've just been telling me about, because that's greenhouse gases through um, aviation fuel. They then look totally perplexed because they deserve that holiday. And 
they you know they're inclined to say things like well you lived like that no we didn't we really did not do that so the experience that they've had growing up is not the experience that i had growing up yeah it, they're very entitled uh generation I do. <laughs> it's, 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 it's wrong to say that it's an unkind sort of statement because my parents thought that i was an entitled generation yes, as well my next generation will think the same uh, their children will say, oh, you know, when they have children, mum and dad, look look what you've left us. Look at this legacy, this legacy of fantastic um, lifestyle. I don't get it. Uh, the thing that we've never seemed to be able to get through in recent times is the genesis of the New Zealand economy. Yep. Um, it isn't magically yep. um, made out of a silicon chip or something like that. It does have to have some base harvest of something. Yeah. So um, my concept is that what we've done, every generation tries to give its next generation a better life than the parents had. That is the whole focus. You know, regeneration, uh, generation, the next generation should be better. We've given education. I was the first of my family to go to university. Now it's virtually an expectation that you will go through tertiary education, whether that is or isn't a sensible idea. We're, one time we can discuss what, how, why that occurred, that whole education thing. But we should be able to read, write and do arithmetic. And some people will start doing the calculations or the science that allows us to recover nutrients as they go through the sewage system because you know, the whole business about phosphorus is really important there. That is a, a, a limited resource and there's a certain amount of um, concern about where it's coming from and all the sorts of ownership businesses. So how can we create the food system that we need for the future, technology is already giving us some of the answers and that will improve all the time. I'm not into thinking we need to try and establish something for a thousand years hence because we've no idea what will actually be required. But what we can do is look after our current resources sensibly. Just made the point that water going out to sea, we could use it first and return it so there's the you know the managed return thing um to keep the aquifers and the rivers flowing somebody said to me recently as we were um actually landing for a meeting what's wrong with the rivers i said these are the canterbury plains well why do the rivers look like that i said they're braided rivers they're coming out across the flats and they wobble along depending how much water there is in them is that natural i said absolutely back in the 1840s Somebody was sent from Wellington. He was a reverent doctor and he stood on the bank on Banks Peninsula. This is all in the literature saying, right, so I'm scoping this out, my Canterbury Plains as a place to settle. And the problem is going to be there is no wood. All I can see are waving golden grasses and sparkly twink plaited rivers, braided rivers. And that was where the macrocarpas came in. And the macrocarpas are now old. And somebody, a Fulbright scholar from um, from America working in Canterbury University said, yeah, those macrocarpas are iconic now. When they come down, there's going to be a fuss. And lo, when dairy came in and took out the macrocarpas, which were mature and dropping and fire hazards, there was a fuss. And we just need to remember New Zealand is unique. Our trees grow faster, they drop over, fall over faster, and a lot of the things we've been trying to do, which includes afforestation, which includes regenerative, just aren't appropriate here. 
just not appropriate. So it's a pity the government fixes on them instead of talking to new scientists trained here first. It's amazing. I, you know, as a sort of former landowner of Canterbury, um, small land holding there, I, you should see those rivers run uh, full and you can see them run, well, you can see nothing in them. And But there is still water generally going through the substrata, the rocks and stuff. And the locals have got lots of data on what happens. I, I do, you know, the concern about lowering the aquifers, that's that's genuine, I assume, and um, they, that can be managed by telemetry and all sorts of stuff. But mm-hmm. there's property right around um, sunk investments already, and we need to, need to be careful of that. Yeah. But nothing is insurmountable by engineering and science, nothing. But we, Absolutely. we, we tell society that tomorrow is going to be bad and uh, it's all bad and and farmers are to blame. So, you know, your stories are always inspiring, Jacqueline, but let's move on to a different, sorry, uh, do you want to say something there, Jasper? Yes, uh, we were talking about, you know, United Nations just before this and James Shaw, he has uh, been on record saying that the Paris Agreement is not a get out of the jail card for New Zealand to bring methane level down. Now, in some other countries, and this is probably just me, uh, you know, as a layperson looking at it, they are effectively using public purse, say in the case of the Dutch, to buy out those farmers. Yeah. Right? Because they seem to have no other way out. Now, they also say that do everything to still maintain food security. And we are, as farmers, I'm a dairy farmer, we are told all of this, is going to get you a premium price for your product. This is going to, you know, help us, the word thrive. We have an organization I call Thriving Southland. We're going to thrive and make catchment groups and go to the discussion groups. Yeah. But going by even New Zealand research, I was looking as, uh, was it the Northland, uh, uh, it's one of those monitor farms, the Northland Dairy Trust Dairy ha- yeah. Farms. Yeah. When I looked at their research, this is the 21-22 research, it showed talking in terms of percentages here, Jacqueline, that a 9% reduction in emissions per kg milk solid was achieved with a 38% decrease in milk and a 40% decrease in income. Yeah, so insane. I might be thick. This doesn't add up. No, it doesn't. And I've written about these very comparisons that we're doing that Align Farms on the Canterbury Plains is trying to do some work as well and showing anything we do from our current system where it's run well is going to increase our greenhouse gases per bite, uh, certainly decrease income and decrease food production. The problem is, at least in terms of the calculations, they have reduced greenhouse gases per hectare, which is what the government is on about. Now, James Shaw and various other ministers actually are still convinced that we can maintain income because we'll get a premium for the lower amount of milk, but nobody's seen it. Nobody's seen it. And there are various groups for meat as well that are saying, if you do this, uh, then you can get five cents extra per kilo of meat, for instance. But we've done the calculations and uh, it, we'd have to drop stocking rate and therefore end up with less to sell. So the five cents is not going to compensate us. And we've done the greenhouse gas calculations for the farm and we're really at the low end of everything because we maintain our pasture quality. Dropping your stocking rate often means you lose pasture quality, which means your greenhouse gases go up per kilo of production 
Then they counter it saying that we are getting record prices for our commodities. They are not talking of the spiraling of input costs. We are just contract ah. milkers, so we don't own a property. But even for us, the prices, the costs, even to get a tradesperson out here from Invercargill, it yeah. begins, the clock starts at about $180 for travel alone, plus just, and then comes something else. There's not a lot of fat left in the system ah. now. There isn't. Don't, um uh, the figure out of the Waikato for the season is that 80% of the dairy farmers, the, and Waikato is the home of dairying in New Zealand, 80% uh, are not in the black. And now that's appalling. And so I've been trying to say to the um, analysts, please stop saying that it's a strong price. You haven't looked at the cost of production. It's not a good, it's not covering it. So. And that's part of being my issue from the day I heard about value add and all that sort of stuff no, in the 80s. Let's do that. I used to, I, my first job, a uh, real job really, was in a laboratory at a meatworks. And we used to start, I remember this, uh, there was a quality assurance stuff, which is fair enough. And then there was the, um, the value add, the boning out and all this yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah. When I became a farmer, I just sort of realized that this was a line that was used a lot. We're going to add value. But for the farmer, he wants to capture the value to put not all of it. You know, some of, you know, obviously, you can't have everything because you, you're doing a trade. Um, and the whole money go around is um, sort of circular. But it, it is about capturing value to stay inside the farmer's uh, checkbook so he can do stuff that. Uh, continues his business. Uh, people are trying very hard to destroy their business. Now, as a sheep and beef farmer, I only probably had two or three good years in my 35 years where I would say I was earning at least as much as an average New Zealand wage. Yeah. And it's, it's an odd phenomena that we think that we're, we're trying to add value, but we're adding value to lots of people outside the farm gate as well yeah. who don't yeah. acknowledge the damage they're doing inside the farm gate. So Vincent Hearinger did actually do a, an, a column on all of this about farmers should add more value, and he said actually they do. So I think it was probably on News Hub. Mm. Um, and the, the ability to add value in the way that is conceived is not, has certainly not come true for most farmers, and it's, that's um, pretty sad given that everything they've tried to do and a lot of people in um, urban areas not directly uh, engaged don't seem to understand that the, there's a difference between income, cash flow, and assets. And our return on assets is actually not that great, certainly not like a retail um, outlet, most retail, not all, and um, supermarkets and those sorts of things. So if we try to do those comparisons, we might start being able to explain to New Zealanders what it actually takes to be a farmer. And a lot of that is just guts to get through. And as farmers, you know, we are price takers, not price makers. This is nothing like, all right, first April today, the minimum wage went up. Let me yep. increase this a bit more and let this end up there. Yep. As someone who came to New Zealand in 2009 as a migrant, that time there was a ISSL, immediate short skill list, under which uh, my husband got his work visa and I came as a dependent. That time, the minimum wage, I very clearly remember, was $13.25 per hour. 
right? And it was the same regardless of when I had to do my visa, the employer. And uh, we've, yeah. we've had a really good run with employers, my husband and I. We're only on our third job in 14 years. And oh. he didn't have to do a market comparison and give us meet a certain median wage. Currently, in New Zealand, in 2019, this government set forth a regime that if a foreigner, which is what I was then, is going to get a work visa, you need to meet the um, median price, yeah. median wage rate, which is $27, $28 right now. When you add holiday pay and all, it is 30 bucks an hour. So in 15 years, I can tell you for dairy farming or anyone who gets a worker from overseas, from 1325 wages, which are your biggest cost, I don't know if FERT has again gone up where it is now, it has more than doubled. So we have to be super efficient as it is all the time. And you see more robotic or automatic drafting gates or cup removers and all of that. But there, and this is what I'm coming to, there comes a point when you can't really build any more efficiencies in the system, something's got to give. You are done. Yeah. You have gotten every last bit of blood that you could. Yeah. So I've just looked at the um, Reserve Bank inflation calculator for 2010. I did the calculation. So you arrived in 2009. Wages have gone up 50% since then. I, have you... Um, were paid a dollar in 2010 you'd need a dollar 51 now and food has gone up only well, one dollar on food in 2010 you'd need a dollar 29 now so food has not kept up with wages over the last 13 years and people forget that housing's the one that's gone ballistic but they um, the cost of living absolutely is one of the misunderstandings where where's it coming from just like the bioeconomy and what farmers can do on farm to be the so-called better because people like the look of sunflowers and you know don said farm farming has often had to go starkers in public no other businesses are held yeah. at the same level of scrutiny i, no, I think I it's in some cases it's probably be a saving grace don Unlike many other industries who are now, I saw a few uh, last night talking of meeting some sustainability ratings, which are actually now getting certain credits. I don't know how they are going to translate, but they're going to get some sort of an approved check that if you give someone uh, six weeks off for gender reaffirmation surgery, if you give someone off a certain time paid leave for something else. So all of this nonsense that's coming in, these where does the money come from? For yeah. everything. I wonder if a day comes for that, for dairy farming to start doing that. I would not like, I don't think my husband's answer would be publishable. No. <laughs> I think many people's wouldn't. I think that was Suncorp in Australia. Uh, it was staggering when I read that um, that special treatment. Uh, even New Zealand Allbirds, the Merino wool shoemakers, they have started offering, you know, leaves for certain uh, services. In, in That's, I believe, in the States for their employees for stuff that should be personal business absolutely nothing to do with the business's efficiencies right and and you know i i think that links into a story i'd like to talk about as well which is the egg shortage in new zealand um have you an opinion on that jacqueline i mean how did that start up I, it was unnecessary but in my understanding but you may have a different view how did it, no, how did it it's a stuff up 
And the stuff up is that uh, people understand about batteries. And um, the I could add that actually the research says battery hens have got less adrenaline rushing around than free range because at least they know who their enemies are, whereas if they're out in free range, they're not. The other comment is that avian flu has usually come in through um, free range hens because, you know, pick up in the atmosphere. So, yeah, we um, farm, get rid of battery cages. The advanced people went into colony cages, which are the ones that are about a billiard table big, and they've got a number of hens that you're supposed to be able to know where your pecking order, where you are in the pecking order, I use the term advisedly, and they have the scratching places and dust baths so that the animals, the birds, are allowed to express their natural behaviour. But in 18 and 19, the two big supermarkets said, oh, we're not going to have anything on our shelves with cage in the name. And so the colony people who effectively, it's a million bucks a house, uh, are now... <laughs> shafted they've spent all that money uh one of my students did an innovative they get to do special projects and she said she would do hers her parents had uh hens and the pets so they did she did all the work on the um the, looking at the lower productivity with free range rather than colony rather than cage and the shorter lifespan for the free range versus the others and the calculations of what it would take to convert. And she, her conclusion at the end of it was that her parents at 55 would never pay off the conversion. So they went and they sort of semi-retired into just doing the free range. Now, the issue was the decision by the supermarkets as opposed to the original decision by the government saying this is what our people want. Well, do they really want to pay $12 a dozen of eggs? And and the, the penultimate president of SPCA said, I would never say to a mother with small children or any children in the supermarket, you should not buy the eggs that are there at the cheaper price, that you should be buying free range organic or whatever, because it's just not realistic for some people to choose that way. I gave, and I've got, I gave this problem to my students because I was um, rung by the farmer who's the vet and asked to bring some eggs because he had a fawn uh, with a mother had rejected it and he feeds them initially because he can't get colostrum an egg beaten into homogenized milk homogenized because then there aren't any fatty globules but the egg is good and it was late and I came out through the supermarket and there were no uh, the choice was either organic free range or cage and I could not bring myself to put cage eggs battery cages in my trolley and when I got to the farm the vet farmer said but I can't afford to bring up that form if it's on a dollar every feeding with the egg. And I said, well, luckily it's my money, not yours, but I'm going to use this for the students. And they would tie themselves up in knots about what to do about this ethical dilemma between feeding the fawn affordably and therefore it could come out or um, going for the expensive eggs 
And I don't think any of them have actually really come to grips. I don't think New Zealand has, because when we go into the supermarket, we're in the area that we think meets in general our requirements, which include ethical and welfare and all of those. And then people tend to choose what's on good value. Exactly. So, and uh, yeah, I was on the National Animal Welfare Advisory Committee when all this was being talked about around, say, 2010-12. And we had big respect for the sunk investment that the existing users uh, or growers uh, had, and that they were transitioning to these fantastic colony cages. Yeah. Uh, and I've been into a, uh, we, we went into um, single caged room, you know, hens and, and a big shed, and then we went into where they had six or so in a, in a cage, and then we went into the colony cages, and the vocalisation was so different. The chooks were so happy and seemed to be so happy in the colony cages. I thought, oh, this is the end of the story. So I was staggered to believe uh, what happened in 2018-19 and, and it's still playing out. So um, consumers, I just hope they are wise to what's going on and um, hopefully they can make their choices because actually I recall uh, way back 2018 somewhere in there, Dr. John Knight at Otago University talked about, uh, did a paper on uh, basically the buying preferences of consumers um, and it's price. It's about value. The value proposition is how most people buy. But if you're an elite, if you're, a, uh, as we've talked about where the, the new term is the woke, the, the social justice warriors yeah. and, and all that stuff, you can afford all this stuff. It doesn't matter the price. It's just... Uh, it's just us that's we're, we're concerned about ourselves. But and do remember, sorry, but remember there's research um, on age groups and people tend to be uh, woke until they have to pay for it. So the young pushing their parents to do the right thing and then they get out and they find themselves that they're actually um, actually in employment and having to pay rent and, oh, gosh, and perhaps it's not so bad after all. So... But decisions are a easy to make with other people's money. You know, as a friend of mine would say, if you're uh, at 18, if you're not a socialist, you don't have a heart. If you're still one at 40, you don't have a brain. <laughs> that's, that's probably what it translates into. But very practically speaking, you just said that it's a supermarket. So we're now, you know, skewing this and people don't have choices. I can tell you where I live. I live 80 k's from town. There have been no eggs available yesterday. There might be some this morning. I haven't gone down to the small four square we have here. So your only options is either you have something or you don't, unless you are willing yeah. to take an hour's yeah. drive somewhere else. And this is what things have come to. This We talk about at the end with inflation biting and everything, the one who's going to the shops, we are just looking for a good deal, whatever is reasonable. And obviously, I mean, there are some things like pork and other things that I will look for. Is it New Zealand raised? If I am going for that, I'm yeah. definitely not buying that reconstituted crap. But otherwise, like dairy farmers, we are now being held to ransom. Probably a British, I am, uh, some might be accused of hyperbole here. But we have these bigger buyers, Anchor, Nestle, the others who are now dictating that you know, this is what you need to meet. Your level three emissions need to be now factored in before we buy something from you. My question always remains, if you're not going to buy from the most efficient farmers in the world, are you going to stop buying from everywhere else? That means you're effectively ready to go out of business here? 
Right. I think what they're going to do, and no, we're not going to go out of business, is uh, what Coles, for instance, is already doing. Coles in the uh, Australia are buying the wheat with its um, five star, look, fewest emissions, and they use all of that up and then they buy the next tranche. Mm. So if our um, big Nestle, McDonald's, all of that start with the same approach, then New Zealand is okay. But what we know, Jaspreet, is that actually uh, there is a range within Fonterra, for instance. I've seen the data because, you know, they publish it effectively. Then they, um, in their preliminary research, their pilot trials on this, we saw a range from something like six to something, well, pushing over 18 in terms of the greenhouse gases per kilo of milk solids. So Fonterra is now discussing how they manage that. And I would then add sort of generically without the Fonterra word in there, is that if you are on rough pasture and Northland has to farm Kikuyu, then uh, but Canterbury farms irrigated beautiful grass and clover. So there is going to be a difference between how the animals manage. And so there may be signals coming about where we should or shouldn't, now that the market is demanding this, be doing certain types of agriculture. We know that for sheep and beef, hard hill country creates more greenhouse gases. But that's why we have an easy country. But that's why we used to have the fattening farms so that they bring the animals down and put them on better pasture. So we, we've come around in circles, really, because we talked about the market demanding it. Yeah, I get to be convinced um, that uh, we they are demanding it. Uh, and I noticed uh, uh, a Fonterra supplier sent me some data the other day. Yeah, I'm not a Fonterra yeah. supplier about what they're doing, and it looked like that all the emissions from that business of processing, where they were trying to sheet them back through inside the farm gate, and I, you know. I don't think that's acceptable. Uh, um, I'm, I'm waiting to see it evolve. Um, can we just go on to food miles for a moment, though? Um, years ago, 20, 20, yeah, they didn't last long. Say 2005, 20, 2010, there was all this food miles discussion and New Zealand did lots of papers on it and we won the day that the New Zealand footprint was, uh, in terms of food miles, was low compared to um, local sort of produced stuff in, in other countries. Now, so you say it didn't last long? Has it gone and it's been replaced by um, climate credentials? Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it, the whole footprint thing. So um, the UK tried with the little red tractor to get people to consider food miles, but the little red tractor hasn't got as much creds and credibility as it once had. And people are more concerned, and we've got research on this, about the actual costs than anything else. So the environment... Sustainability comes after their actual wallet. So for New Zealand, is it our customer? It, the customer is the company, not the consumer. So the customer is the Nestle, McDonald's, um, whatever else is involved. And they are saying that they are under pressure from their government. So then they're going to push that pressure, just as, as Fonterra and Blue Steel and, and Silverfern Farms is under pressure from the government. They're going to put that pressure 
onto the companies and the companies are then putting it on board. So we come back to the government thinks it's doing what can what its electors want. And actually, we just need to get through the reality of the bioeconomy and what the impacts will be. Well, the electors have never been asked, of course. Uh, they've, they've been brainwashed, perhaps. Um, yeah. No, Ooh, they have harsh, been. No, they're asked a lot, but it's they're never told what the impact will be. So the SAFE and Peter doing their surveys, do you want animals to be in hens to be in colony cages? Well, no, but they aren't told that actually it's um might be preferable to other things. And by the way, your cost of eggs is going to go up a dollar. Do you want that? Oh no. <laughs> so tell me a bit more about the colony cages and then you can get into the story. So it's any of these things. The insanity is um prevalent. So we just need, then, no survey should go out without actually then they, having they full bring background. the answer to you. Then they tell you that eat plant-based. That might just oh, so. so then I can go into the what the greenhouse gases are actually associated with and the fact that you're eating. I'll tell my you know my young nephews and nieces, have you checked the ingredient list? And they said, Well, it's oats. I said, check up the rest of the stuff there. Because it's all the additives and this whole business about being vegan. When you look at uh, what is recommended to keep yourself healthy, I just love it. It's all fortified. Well, that means additives. And just eat normally and you won't need the additives, which, by the way, are greenhouse gases that are never calculated. Yeah. Funny. Do you think, uh, just as, as a change of tack again, do you think Clarkson's Farm, have you ever watched Clarkson's Farm, the Jeremy yep. Clarkson? Hilarious. Yeah. Hilarious. I think he's done more, my personal view is he has done more for mainstream civilization in terms of agriculture to uh, show how it really is. And sure, he's a wealthy man and sure, he's not suffering, but he is at least presenting the case. And I think it's fantastic. We don't have that happening in New Zealand. Uh, I don't know why, perhaps we need to... Uh, Perhaps we need to develop something like that. Well, or we could invite him out here but, and show him what New Zealand is really like because one of his early rants was about New Zealand animals being outside and that was poor welfare, yes. whereas, whereas actually, uh, of course, those of us who live here know that the cows are actually preferring it and it's quite, quite different in terms of environment and soils. We must always remember the soils from the UK where I first started farming. So, so, Jacqueline, you'll know this just for the listeners. Um, what is the ideal temperature? Sorry, I'm clicking my pen um, for a uh, for a cow. What do they like for the most? Uh, it's not it's not that hot, is it? It's between no. they can they can live in quite cool conditions and quite warm conditions. Uh, well, I would reckon that they start dropping milk above about twenty four. So we have a shelter in the Waikato and they're going up all around the place and people think, oh, well, right. that's for their winter. No, they're perfectly fine out there in winters. And um, six degrees is not a problem. But mm. during the heat, then that can become an issue. And the point about the shelter is that's where we feed them the, the balanced diet. So they get maize silage and grain and whatever else. And they actually, because of that, will move themselves at their own speed because they've come in to get their sweeties. We have bat latches and so that they can move themselves. And that um, reduces all sorts of concerns about the heat. But actually, we're set up 
in the Waikato for that heat. And indeed, if it's a really bad night, we don't put the backlatch up and, you know, you go up to the shelter and it's um, wood chips and um, transparent roof. You go up and they've all put themselves to bed and they're having a rumination. And so they're off the soil and that is their choice. Whereas in the UK, I can think of the um, animals being in the barns, which were at that stage not always ideal, for five months a year. And actually, our system is a lot better, but we have the infrastructure to cope with that. UK, they're going to be interesting because they've got had some very hot summers, but quite short ones. They're, um, you know, not elongated, extended times. So do they have the infrastructure to cope with the heat stress? Good point. And so what's next for New Zealand farmers? I'm seeing these farm um, management plans integrated farm management plans as a massive feeding frenzy for a bunch of consultants and clipboarded um, bureaucrats. And for what gain? We then have limit setting on our catchments uh, as well. That's another added burden. What is what is the gain from any of this stuff? I mean, I just, I know I'm passing through uh, my life and as a farmer is finished, um, but I just see I, I don't want to act like a dinosaur. I, I was always part of the, the the innovative set, I suppose you would say, in the 80s to when we have change forced upon us. I don't want to sound like I'm not innovative today, but I just see uh, I see problems uh, that don't add anything uh, to the, the stuff the stuff we're talking about. It just doesn't add anything to us. Yeah, and... Just Preet and I know that Fonterra has been giving us farm environment plans for a while. And for mm. us, the first time we went through it, remembering that I'm a soil scientist and, it, and the farmer is also a vet, there was a little team that came because nobody wanted to be, well, you know, exposed to people who actually knew stuff. And it's always been a very positive experience. But for some people... The farm environment plans that have involved the dairy companies has actually been a huge learning experience. So part of what they have done, I think, has been um, is now reflected in our fewer greenhouse gases and the low nitrogen. We already were because I'm a soil scientist and um, the efficiencies have been there. Now, whether the farm environment plans will do anything except reassure people is um, and the people of the regional councils and the national government is going to be an interesting thing because they do take time and they do take money and they for some people it adds no value at all right and i you know i accept that if you measure stuff and if you put write it down and you think you've got a plan that's all fantastic um but what if it that th this won't stop we know that the agenda of the regime outside the farm gate is is a juggernaut. It's just yeah. gathering speed. And so yeah. when when can we say no more? Had enough? Just had enough? I don't know that we we as farmers will actually ever be able to do that because uh, fundamentally we're only four percent, and then another eleven in the rural professionals of the electorate. Mm. What I think we can do is go on being reasonable about it and saying we're doing our absolute best. Where is the science? We're really questioning where is the science on whether what this aspect will actually 
achieve. And so the whole business about riparian planting, for instance, that's just fascinating. The important thing is keeping animals out of the rivers, putting culverts in and drains so that they don't I get there. Riparian planting looks pretty. It looks pretty. And what's it, it actually do? It looks pretty. So that aspect, and it costs a lot, and then all the maintenance type of thing. There are some things that we can say science has shown will make a difference, so a dollar here is worth this much. Now, the, the good news is that Auckland has actually is doing this approach. They're saying, what's the issue in this catchment? Right, so what is the um, most bang for the least buck? that we can achieve here. And that is an approach that I think would be well rolled out across the country so that we actually can get some differences. But remembering always when people witter on about, you know, problems with our rivers, our rivers are great. We will never get rid of the sediment because we have slippy soils that do shake to pieces with earthquakes and then we get the odd cyclone. And um, we do have that, you know, they do tend to dump sediment, um, and that is the nature of our uplift and our plains and those sorts of things. So our best way for the future, where do we see New Zealand in the future, is targeting ever greater efficiencies in the way that we have been on as a trajectory since 1926 when the DSIR was in, um, created to do the research, remembering that MAF, Ministry of Agriculture at the time, uh, so it's Department of Agriculture actually, was established in the 1800s. And we've been doing this for a long time. We have, and that's what irks me to this day. A mantra of mine was that we already had our ETS, an efficiency trading scheme. We've had it for eons, and yet we have this legislated um, emissions trading scheme that adds nothing to us at all, in my opinion, but but cost and dilemma and angst yep. and tension, yep. all of this regime. And when you look at the wiring diagram now, though, Jacqueline, there's so many people, even in the ag um, gas space, uh, feeding off it. It is just yep. mind boggling how we've tied ourselves in knots in this. And I, I don't know, you know, I, I wish it could end. I know that's a pipe dream. Oh, but, I'm with you on it. I think there is too much. And um, one of the things we should be doing, and I wrote a column about this, now with Cyclone Gabrielle, that gave us the opportunity to say, actually, just put a pause. We're about to have more land use change with this managed retreat. Let the farmers work it out in terms of their optimization of their resources for the future, orientated towards the market. Stop putting policy in there. We've got land use change. We're on track to meet our greenhouse gas targets. Just let them work it out. Yes, locals uh, with private property rights uh, generally figure stuff out. It's when you get the meddlers yeah. Uh, yeah. becoming too rampant in your life that problems exist. And, you know, I would argue. Uh, and others would argue against me, no doubt, that the emissions trading scheme has already created um, mayhem, as I observed in the media last week, where a certain uh, East Coast farm had been sprayed out and um, it had just eroded, oh, you know, yes. fallen, fallen away and it was going to be a carbon farm. Um, I just find that that abhorrent, um, but private property rights there, they, the owners have got the problem and they were silly enough to uh, do this, chase this, this um, carbon unit yeah. value. And it's, 
there was a, a very good article written in uh, Harper's about conning the climate, which could be summarised as nowhere else, and it was actually for America, are people being paid not to produce something that nobody can see. Yes. And the people getting rich are the auditors of the trees. Exactly. And, and on the other side of it, the CO2 that we apparently revile, we should revere. It's the fertiliser of life. I don't know why people can't accept that. Um, it's not as deleterious uh, as, as we're told uh, to, to temperature and climate activity. I mean, it, uh, everything I read says it's, there's just no correlation. It just doesn't work that way, temperature and CO2, but uh, hard to convince people. And, of course, when people talk about climate, they think, most people think the weather. Yeah, there's uh, a model. Kind of, yeah. Anyway, yeah. so, and we haven't even talked about junk food. I know that's uh, something that we could get onto. And, uh, I uh, think we might have to get Jacqueline back on for another episode. Jacqueline, if you are amiable enough. But yeah, I look as you forward. Were, you were talking about trees, Don. I was telling my dad the other day on a phone call. I'm hoping to see them this year. It's been a few years, what with COVID and this nonsense. I said, Dad, in your lifetime, the old adage of money does not grow on trees has actually been proven false. In <laughs> oh, it that does awful. actually. Oh, no. And yeah. It's, oh, I, think that, I think that's a great, great line, Jaspreet. Uh, and, um, you know, and wrapping up, uh, I think you now, for having met uh, Jacqueline for the first time, you'd have to say that uh, she did sort of develops the scepticism with a smile um, case. And I think that's uh, a, a, an art she's um, obtained over many years. And I think that's why uh, the farming fraternity uses uh, at, at zero cost, actually, um, Jacqueline to, to do a lot of speaking because she actually tells the story um, in a way that everyone can understand it. She distills it down, and I, you know, I'm just grateful that we'll be able to get her for an hour and a half today. It's been fantastic. Pleasure Absolutely. to talk with you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much, Jacqueline. Absolutely brilliant chatting today, and yes, we will get you back. Okay, I look forward. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.